right, all right, all right. That's the foghorn, and that means it is time for the Cabot Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, we have a very special guest this week, former Secretary of the Navy Ray Mabus. The third longest-serving SecNav in history will weigh in on some choice topics, from a littoral combat ship to ship names, the Navy's relationship with America, the effects of tough budgeting decisions, and his focus on green energy. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. As we record this podcast, there are unconfirmed reports that the Russian frigate Admiral Makarov has been hit by a Ukrainian attack and is burning in the Black Sea near Sevastopol. If confirmed, this could be even more significant than the attack in April on the cruiser Moskva. Admiral Makarov is one of the newest, most modern ships in Russia's Black Sea fleet, having been in service only since 2017. While many think the Moskva was caught napping by the Ukrainians, the assumption is the Admiral Makarov should have been armed, alert, and ready. Meanwhile, conflicting reports continue about U.S. assistance to Ukraine in the April 13 attack on Moskva, hit by two shore-launched Ukrainian Neptune cruise missiles. Several news outlets report that targeting intelligence was provided to Ukraine from a U.S. Navy P-8A Poseidon Maritime Patrol aircraft known to have been in the vicinity. The Pentagon has vigorously denied active participation in the attack. On May 6, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby repeated earlier statements that the U.S., quote, provides useful, relevant intelligence so the Ukrainians can better defend themselves. They are under no obligation to tell us how they intend to use that intelligence, Kirby said. Ukraine also claimed its forces sank two Russian Navy Raptor-class patrol boats on May 2nd near Snake Island. Ukraine claimed the attack was carried out by Turkish-built TB-2 Bayraktar aerial drones. The Bayraktars have been used at sea for surveillance and targeting missions, but this is the first known instance of a Ukrainian unmanned aircraft attacking ships at sea. Bayraktars have, however, been used against moving land targets. On May 5th, the U.S. Navy announced the littoral combat ship Sioux City has begun the first ever LCS deployment to the U.S. Sixth Fleet in Europe. The cruise has been years in the planning, hampered by a lack of confidence in the combining gears of Freedom-class ships. The Navy is reluctant to release many details of the deployment, but after some time operating in Europe and the Mediterranean Sea, the Sioux City is expected to push through the Suez Canal and enter the Persian Gulf. In the Pacific, the deployed littoral combat ship Jackson arrived at Singapore's Changi Naval Base on May 2nd, marking a return to Singapore as a forward base and maintenance site. After the pandemic hit in 2020, deployed LCSs conducted their regular maintenance periods at Guam, which, although a U.S. territory, is considerably further from the intended Western Pacific operating area of U.S. Navy LCSs. And up in Marinette, Wisconsin, the Freedom-class littoral combat ship Beloit, LCS-29, is to be christened and launched May 7th, even as the Navy seeks to decommission earlier ships in the class. Construction of the Beloit was ordered from Lockheed Martin in September 2018. The Beloit is the next-to-last Freedom-class ship building at Fincantieri Marinette Marine. The very last Lockheed LCS is the future USS Cleveland, LCS-31. And finally, in the Pacific, the Chinese aircraft carrier Liaoning is underway in the Pacific Ocean, south-southeast of Okinawa. 
Four destroyers are accompanying the carrier, including the Type 55 Renhai class Nanchang. The task group has been closely monitored by Japanese self-defense force ships and aircraft. And that's a look at some of this week's naval news. All right, we are honored and lucky to have with us today, Ray Mabus, former Secretary of the Navy from May 2009 to January 2017. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Secretary. Chris, I'm really happy to be here. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very honored to be on your podcast. Well, that's, okay, I'll just, I'll just bask in that glow for, for just a half a second. Uh, sir, really, thank you very much for doing, uh, doing this. You were uh, one of the longest serving Navy secretaries ever for, I think you're the third, are you the third longest after Gideon Wells and um, Josephus Daniels? I am. Is that, is that, is that correct? So correct. the Civil War and World War One. And then Ray Mabus. So that's a that's a pretty good um, moniker there. So let's let's get right to it. Let's talk about some of the some of the uh, issues that were important when you were uh, during your term as a Navy Secretary, but are still echoing today and uh, right actually not just echoing but front and center. From the get go in your term as Navy Secretary, you focused on alternative forms of energy. You had some, some successes early on, but it was a hard slog. Oil prices remained low and even fell during your term. But you've remained an advocate for clean energy investments and efforts to get off what you call an addiction to fossil fuels. Well, this year in particular almost seems the fulfillment of a prophecy. So Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine is resulting in dramatic jumps in oil and gas prices and a near world shift in energy sources. I know that at the end of April, you took part in a news conference with Senator Tom Carper of Delaware, focusing on clean energy independence for America. We're all familiar with the positive aspects of clean energy, but what are the major obstacles, not only today, but in the current political environment and in the near future? How do you see that? I think the major obstacle is just the will to do it. We've got the technology. It can be done very quickly, but uh, you've got to overcome a lot of um, a lot of just very entrenched interest. I mean, oil companies have been subsidized by the federal government for more than a hundred years. Uh, they've been a, a monopoly. They've um, they've been the only only game in town. And to your point, though, that oil prices dropped during my tenure. Uh, on our bases today, two thirds of all our energy come from non-fossil fuel sources, and we save $400 million doing it. So I think the, the main obstacle is will and information because uh, too many people think, oh, if you're gonna do this, if you're gonna make it better for the planet, it's gonna, it's going to cost more. It's going to hit our bottom line. And that's just not the case anymore. Alternatives, no matter what you're talking about, are cheaper today than the normal fossil fuels. I mean, you, you had um, you sponsored a number of experiments, if you will, or demonstrations where different platforms, aircraft, ships, vehicles ran on alternative fuel sources, military, Navy, Navy, Marine Corps um, systems. Uh, a lot of people made, made fun of that, thought it was silly that we'll have lots of fuel and, and that's a waste of time. Um, and yet, it, it seems like maybe sometimes that's the way to go. You look, you look at places, even in Ukraine right now, how are they, how are they getting oil? How are, how, are, how are people transferring fuel? The Marines just got rid of their tanks. 
one of the major complaints is uh, complaints about that was now you know the, uh, fuel convoys were always something that had to be protected. I, I mean, when you when you look at look back at the efforts that you um, sponsored to demonstrate this to the military, how do you feel about that today? I mean, we're talking about quite some years later now, ten years, a, a decade or more later. I did it as a warfighting measure. I did it to make the Navy and Marine Corps better at, at what they do. And I think we proved that. As I said, two thirds of our energy today on our bases is coming from that one, is coming from alternative sources. And when I left, 40% uh, at sea and in the air coming from uh, things like biofuels. And if, if you're looking at stuff like that today, I mean, one of the reasons I did it was the Marines. We were losing a Marine killed or wounded for every 50 convoys of fuel we brought into Afghanistan. And that's just too high a price to pay. Um, and shifting to Ukraine, you know, I started talking to our European allies in 2010 about the need to get off Russian oil and gas, the need to move to alternatives, not just to move to a different source of oil and gas, but to move to something very different because oil and gas prices are set worldwide. It doesn't matter really how much we drill, how much we produce in the U.S. I mean, our, our production right now is near record levels. And we leave our economy and we leave the pocketbooks of American families very vulnerable to unstable dictators like Putin because that's what this price spike did. And it, the same thing hits, hits the military. So, you know, as we're looking, if you want to undercut Vladimir Putin and you want to undercut the, the dictators around the world that control so much of our, of our oil, just move off of it. I mean, I was the ambassador to Saudi Arabia in the mid nineties. And one of my favorite quotes is from an oil minister there, a former oil minister, Zaki Amani, who said the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. It ended because we invented something better. And that's the case today. It is indeed. Um, let's let's uh, shift over to something that I know people want to hear about, and that is the littoral combat ship, LCS. So what that that uh, is something that was already a program already existed when you uh, when you came into office, but you earned a reputation as a tireless advocate for that ship, um, especially going down the hallway to the office of the Secretary of Defense. Um, you successfully argued with OSD to keep buying the ships in a modified form, but but to keep on buying them as as you as the Navy would begin transitioning to a frigate form of that ship not the frigate we're talking about today, although eventually it evolved into that. But now the service, is, the service itself is urging a very vigorous divest to invest approach and wants to decommission at least half of those ships. Some of them have, have only been in service for a couple of years and never even deployed. How do you feel about what's happened with that program? The money and the effort spent, the ships have been built and are still in construction and what the Navy's done with them. You must, you, you must be just shaking your head sometimes when you hear this stuff. I do think the LCS brings a whole lot of capabilities that the Navy doesn't have any other way and, and is a 
is a really, it's not just a bridge to the frigate. It provides all sorts of capabilities on its own. And you talked about the modifications. You know, we put in things like um, total ray sonar over the horizon missiles. We up armored these uh, ships, but they, particularly in the Western Pacific, particularly in a, um, in a China fight or a Korea fight, these ships just make, um, make the opposition, the adversaries job amazingly more tough. They're very agile. They're very, um, and, and they're lethal in, in so many ways. And I'm, I'm not sure, I know that, um, uh, you know, early on in the program, I mean, when I got there, they were costing way too much, way too much. And if you remember, you know, we, we're building them in two shipyards in Marinette, Wisconsin, and in Mobile, Alabama. And we said we were going to do a down select based mainly on price. And they both uh, came in, you know, basically the price got cut almost in half. It got cut 40% for both variants. And so we continued to buy both variants. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a really good deal for the Navy. I never quite understood the opposition. Uh, I understood it a little bit more from uh, OSD because they had people like Cape that um, you know, were just imbued by this normal, you know, this is not the way we do things here. This is, you know, this doesn't look like a traditional Navy ship. Um, but once those ships got into the fleet, what you said, um, you know, the, the ones that are in the Western Pacific now, the ones that, um, that have deployed, the fleet commanders love them. The, um, <clears throat> the combat commanders really like them. Other countries are buying them now um, because they do bring so much capability, particularly uh, being really fast, really nimble, and able to go places that no other no other Navy ships can. I know that uh, during my time uh, at, at Navy, the Navy wanted to get rid of a bunch of cruisers um, who, instead of upgrading them, because they did need upgrades. And, you know, Congress just said, wait a minute, no, you can't do this. And I suspect that um, when you take a close look at these, the notion of getting rid of brand new ships with a lot of capability may not fly um, in Congress. But I do think that um, giving these ships the opportunity to do what they, what we know they can do. And every new class of ship, as you know very well, Nearly everyone has design issues, has mechanical issues that you've got to go back and retrofit. That's been done now for um, for for some of the LCS, uh, for the for the some of the gear problems that they had, some of um, some of the other issues that um, were raised. And one and two of the issues were they're not heavily enough armed, and the other is, uh, you know, that that they're that they're not survivable enough. We address both of those. 
and um, and the ships that are coming out now that are still being built uh, by Fincantieri in um, Marionette and by Austell in Mobile, I think bring the Navy a whole lot of value. And, um, and I think that if they're allowed to prove it, they will. And it, um, when you need a bigger fleet, which we do, the notion of somehow getting rid of new capable ships in order to buy ships down the road um, just doesn't seem to, to, to make a lot of sense to me. I mean, the frigate is coming. Marinette is, is beginning to build a frigate. Um, we should certainly do that, but it's, um, what's the phrase? All of the above, you need all these ships. Right. Do you think so? the The history of uh, of LCS is one of, is probably the most complex of any ship type ship class of ship in the history of the United States Navy. But uh, and obviously controversial from the beginning for any number of reasons. Do you think among the mistakes with the program? Do you do you think one of the primary mistakes was not going to a down select? That seemed to have been a political decision to keep the the lobbies in Congress happy from upper mid for upper Midwest and uh, and the South. Uh, obviously, everybody Congress Congress critters all like to have uh, government dollars come to their district. That would that would have that would have pissed off one of those parties. Was that a mistake oh. though? In the end, in the bigger picture, not going to a single design. Well, since I made that decision, I don't think so. Uh, and it wasn't a political decision. No. It was purely uh, war fighting and financial. As I said, when, when I got there, there were two LCSs, one of each class in the water and one of each class being built. And they were, they were costing over $800 million. Uh, and the ships that we were looking at going forward, the price was going up. And so that's when we made the decision, or I made the decision to ask Congress, can I go to a down select, which they gave me the permission to do. And we said it will be based mainly on price. Now we wanted both because they brought different capabilities. I mean, complementary designs. Yeah, the Marinette uh, had a lot better small boat capabilities. The, the Austell, um, the, the, the Mobile ship had, uh, had way better air. I mean, it's got the biggest flight deck of any small combatant uh, in the Navy. And uh, we wanted both. You know, over the course of the next few months, as we said, we're going to down select and we're going to do it based mainly on finance, both of them came down into the $450 million range. And I don't know who won that, uh, who, who won that financial price. I didn't want to know. I, I went back to Congress against the advice of uh, some people I really respected in Navy saying, don't go back to Congress and say, no, we're going the other way. But, um, you know, Congress approved it and they do bring very complimentary um, assets to the fleet and they bring different assets to different geographies too. So, um, uh, I personally don't think it was a mistake 
but um, um, but I also I think that both these ships, as I've said over and over again, I think both of them bring amazing value and uh, are amazing assets for the Navy. Is there anything that anything you you think uh, you would like to have done differently or seen the Navy do differently in developing those ships and putting them out? I would have liked to have seen them get out uh, deployed faster mm -hmm. because we Singapore agreed to take four and that was in 2013 2014 getting them out there to Singapore we got one out uh, but it was one of the very early ones right and the um, I think doing a better job of explaining it to of, of what these ships did and how they fit into the existing fleet and their and their capabilities. And then when the the concern about, you know, they weren't, they didn't have a heavy enough armaments package. And, uh, you know, the mission modules, um, I think they got overpromised. You know, they said it can be swapped out in 96 hours. That's probably not, um, not realistic. And, you know, and to do this as a modular thing, if you're in a fight, um, that may not have been the best decision, but it's one we tried to correct. When was that? In um, 13, um, when we did the, when we, when we set up a, we set up a, a, an office just to look at various other designs um and to see what we could up armor this thing you know putting an an over the horizon missile on it um putting a total ray sonar for the anti-submarine missions uh, giving these ships more defined missions instead of it being a swiss army knife um i think in retrospect that was probably a mistake yeah, and then, of course, now they've canceled the ASW package because the, the VDS, the uh, sonar from Raytheon, just isn't cutting it. So they've had to go to a whole new sonar now. And now, and now only for the frigate. Let's uh, shift, to, shift topics to something else. Um, the Navy symbolism in America, one of the chief perks of the Office of Navy Secretary is you get to choose names for ships. That, so some of your choices were pretty controversial among conservatives, especially the John Lewis class oilers, things like Harvey Milk and Lucy Stone, Sojourner, Sojourner Truth, Cesar Chavez for, for a TAKE. Um, but you also backed up, you, you chose a lot of the names of cities and towns across America, especially for the LCS class. And you embarked on an interesting campaign to sort of raise awareness across america you went out to towns essentially to say you know we we've we've named this ship for you in many cases you went out even a year after the official choice was announced but nobody noticed it but you went out and did a pr campaign you showed up on uh local tv shows you got in the newspaper you really raised raised awareness i was talking to um Randy Forbes a few weeks ago, who was the Republican chairman of the House Sea Power Subcommittee uh, during, during a number of your years, um, he lamented the absence of a conversation with America about the Navy. You were out there doing it. 
there's a growing sense today that the Navy and the country have drifted apart, that most citizens are not very aware of what the Navy does and what it's for. Do you feel that's the case? Do you think everything's backsliding now? I mean, do you, how, do you, how do you see that happening? Well, my, my term for the Navy and Marine Corps is they're America's away team. Right. And when, when they're doing their job, they're usually a long, long way from home. And America just doesn't know about the, about the Navy and the Marines nearly enough. Um, and, and I find that in my, my everyday life, um, when I talk to people about, um, about what the Navy does and about the capabilities of the Navy and about how many responsibilities it has. I mean, we need great armed forces uh, in every branch, but the Air Force and the Army are sort of like firemen or firefighters. They, they stay in the firehouse. A lot of times that's bases here in America. Uh, when they're, they train, when there's a big fire, they go fight it. But then they come back to the firehouse. Um, the, the Navy and Marines are more like the cop on the beat. They're always out. There are no permanent homecomings. Um, in fact, our tempo during peacetime and wartime is actually fairly similar. And um, so I thought one of my jobs was to do exactly what you said, because you know our bases, because we're the Navy, tend to be in coastal states, tend to be on the water. So naming uh, the USS Iowa or the USS Sioux City, uh, the USS St. Louis, the USS Minneapolis St. Paul, the USS Cooperstown, um, the um, the even the USS uh, Little Rock and Montgomery and Jackson, um, you know, made a connection between the people being defended and the people doing the defending. And today, as you know very well, it's about 1% of America serves in uniform. And the, the Navy and Marine Corps you know, about uh, or less than half that. And so if people don't have a, a way to interact, and, and one of the ways is by naming ships and the other is by getting out and talking about it. Uh, and a third way is, you know, I used to go to places where people were joining the Navy and Marines and swear them in, swear them in, um, you know, at ball games or at state fairs or, you know, somewhere that a lot of their neighbors and uh, fellow citizens were going to be. Um, and I don't know if I would describe it as backsliding. I just think it's something you've got to do all the time. That uh, that it it's not one of these things you can go do once, and uh, and it's done. You just have to do it over and over and over again, because there is there's there's not enough knowledge. There's not enough information about the Navy and Marines because they are usually a long way from home. I'll just touch on the one, one of the names you mentioned, Sioux City. So you picked you, you, you picked that one to name a littoral combat ship, USS Sioux City. And uh, I, I have some friends out there 
um, which is about as far from the ocean as you can get in America, um, the seriously serious heartland country. And they were incredibly excited. I was out there a few years ago um, um, and I had a ball cap uh, from the ship and everybody knew what it was. Everybody knew it. the whole town. It was, it was, it was really, I'd never seen anything like it. People talked about it everywhere. Um, the ship was commissioned um, in Annapolis at the Naval Academy. And I went over to, to see the ship before the, before the ceremony itself. The, there, was, there were two reporters from Sioux City that had been sent out, one from a TV station, one from, from the newspaper, to cover the event. They were very excited. Um, it was really impressive. And I know right now that ship is one of the ships that uh, the Navy's trying to decommission. Um, just began its first ever deployment uh, about a week and a half ago. And yet the uh, Navy wants to throw it away. And that has um, gotten a lot of attention out in the heartland. Uh, how dare they, they uh, want to throw our ship away so soon. And that is, that's not a unique situation at all. That's, that's actually pretty, pretty common. A lot of congressmen are hearing from their constituents about they can't believe they want to decommission their ships. St. Louis is another one you just mentioned. Where, where people are pretty exercised about it. But that whole connection with America, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, Elaine Luria talk, talking today constantly about what's the Navy's mission? What's the Navy's point? Can you guys explain yourselves? And there, there's a lot of agreement that the Navy's not doing that, um, that they're, they're not really connecting with people. They're not connecting with Congress. They're not explaining their role and mission very well. Do you, do you, would you agree with that today, or how do you feel about that? How I feel about it, Chris, is, as I said, you've got to keep doing this because uh, I think the Navy and the Marines, but they are the essential services we have today. Uh, you're, you're seeing it, um, particularly in the Pacific, if um, the fact that we are there fact the Navy is there all the time um, sort of is a is a deterrent to some of the people that might become our adversaries it also reassures our allies but I I do think that it is an ongoing job to explain it back here uh, I know that when I was in the Pentagon a very very senior person said I just don't understand the Navy I don't understand what they do um, and again, I think you, know, you can, the, the rise of international trade uh, since World War II, I mean, we've been the dominant Navy and we've kept the sea lanes open for everybody engaged in peaceful commerce. That's never happened in history. Um, but that's also not something that people understand. Right. Finally, I used to make a talk about one day in the Navy and just go around the world and explain what the Navy was up to and what the Marines were up to. And people were always just uh, amazingly surprised that we were in as many places, doing as many things and being as professional and successful. And, and the last thing I'll say is something we, you, you hit on early with, with energy. You know, um, the American Navy is, by far, by far the best, the most professional, best trained, 
and best led uh, Navy in the world. And all you have to do is look at the, um, the Russian ship, the Makva. I mean, this was an air defense ship that got blown up by, by cruise missiles. Uh, you know, they got smug, they got uh, lazy, they, got, uh, they, they thought their abilities were far greater than they were. Um, stuff like that, I am absolutely confident would not happen with our Navy. I'm going to give you one more quick topic before we go, and that is the choices that you have to make when you're running a service like this. When you your your budget choices were constrained by something called sequestration, uh, where you, you were limited on how much money you had, uh, the services were in, in many cases were left up to them to decide how to cut. One of the one of the fun, fundamental choices you had to make was maintenance of what you have today versus investment in new construction for ships to have tomorrow. You pretty much came down on the new construction side. You, you, didn't, you didn't cut that as it was hard enough getting, the, getting ships as it was, but you did cut back on uh, maintenance. Uh, those, those were hard. I mean, when, when you make these choices, obviously somebody's, there's always somebody gonna be very not happy. Uh, whatever you do, you could have done something else. Now the Navy has uh, something they were calling divest to invest, uh, getting rid of ships today, littoral combat ships, cruisers, to buy ships that aren't going to be around in any effective number for many, many, many years. That's a that's a tough choice. Um, your your legacy and that is is I I don't know if people understand the how hard these things are to make. You have to make a choice though. You can't do everything. Um, when you look to divest to invest today, and the Navy's backed off that phrase, although they're still doing the action. Um, how do you feel about, I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts about that? Getting rid of a lot of the ships that you worked hard to, to, to keep and maintain in service for investment in new construction that won't be here for many years, but that's not entirely unlike what you had to do when you were in office. Well, first, you're absolutely right. They're hard choices. And one of the things I've learned in the jobs that I've had, uh, I think I learned it first when I was governor of Mississippi, you have to make those choices. It's, it's not an acceptable thing to just drift along. You have to make them and you, and you have to leave some things behind that you really want to do. Uh, but you've got to, you've got to make it based on what you think will, will move the ball the most in whatever you're trying to do. And one of the main reasons I tried to build more ships was we simply didn't have the fleet to do everything that Congress and the American people expected of the Navy. And uh, we were, you know, I, in 2001, the U.S. Navy had 316 ships. By the time I got there in 2009, it was down to 278 ships. And it was heading further downward. It was heading to, to about 230, 220. Uh, that just wasn't acceptable because we were, we were wearing out our ships. We were wearing out our people because we just didn't have enough. And there were no excuses. You know, if, there, if something happened, uh, there, well, we just don't have the ships. No, you had to send the, had to send the ships. Um, 
And I, but I will say, and one of the things we tried to do, because uh, we, we did um, maintenance, maintenance was one of the things that we didn't fund to 100%. But when John Greenert was CNO, he and I came up with uh, a badly named program, but it was the Optimized Fleet Response Plan, which tried to, um, you know, whoever came up with that name ought to, ought to go into a different line of work. But OFRP, uh, the dreaded OFRP. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was to, to make sure that we were maintaining those ships, to make sure that um, we were, one of the reasons we couldn't maintain ships one of the reasons that maintenance was suffering was that deployments were getting extended so much, was that we were running these ships so much. And what we tried to do was say, okay, here's for a carrier strike group or an amphibious ready group, here's what we're gonna do. Here's, here's when you're gonna be in maintenance. Here's when you're gonna be in workup. Here's when you're gonna be in certification. Here's when you're gonna deploy. And here's when you're coming home. Now the world gets a vote, obviously, but to try to stick to that, to, to not continually extend deployments, to not, uh, you know, sailors are, they're willing to go out and do dangerous things and stay out for long periods of time, but they want some certainty. And it went back to my time in the Navy in the early seventies. We knew when we were gonna leave port. We also knew the exact day we were coming back. And, um, and it made deployments a lot easier, but it also made maintenance and upkeep a lot easier. Well, I think the in the end, though, it, you know, reality does get a vote, and um, it's it, it's incredibly hard to predict reality. So, <laughs> well, if we could, we'd uh, we'd all know we'd all be pretty rich if we were. You're, you're right. Um, I think that, uh, sir, that has been a great talk great interview i really appreciate having you on folks our guest today has been the 75th secretary of the navy ray mabus thank you very much sir and good luck in your future appreciate it chris and uh, same to you take care now hear this now hear this all right time for squawk box now it's mr cervello on perhaps the biggest court case abortion v national defense with this week's leak that the Supreme Court intends to overturn the ruling on Roe versus Wade, American politics has been changed for the foreseeable future. The decision to overturn the 1973 case would be unfortunate on many levels, but one that may not be obvious is the effect it will have on the country's political attention span. Campaign discussions and debates on defense and diplomacy have become less and less the norm in recent years. Now they will likely take an even further backseat to domestic politics and vitriol. The abortion issue will dominate news coverage, campaign fundraising, and national debates, making conversations about international order and protecting the American way of life harder to break through while becoming seemingly less relevant to the electorate. The Supreme Court's draft decision reduces our national decision space to a pinhole, and our future capacity to come together towards any further national goals become minimized. From the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, we should learn a needed lesson of whole of government coherency, one we haven't thought of in decades, the confluence of financial, technological, supply, and military power. 
The decisions of strategy, force structure, budget, and people are once again existential decisions that a distanced leadership in Moscow is just now grappling with and attempting to absolve and mitigate after the fact. Because of an already crowded media space and limited national attention span, making the case for a more capable future force was going to be a tall order. Now, I fear it has become Herculean. This doesn't mean that we or our audience should give up, but it is important to understand the new political environment and the very real challenges we face. Quite simply, explaining blue and gold will be even harder as people focus more and more on red and blue. Well, and without that blue and gold, there might not even be any red and blue. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>